0: Welcome back to Pillar of Truth, where we are in a series entitled The Mission of God's Messiah. Last time, we watched Jesus meet with John the Baptist, get baptized, go into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, then arrive at Nazareth, where his preaching quickly set up some clear divisions between those who believed in him and those who didn't. Today, we will follow Jesus from Nazareth to his ministry at the wedding in Cana, to see what we can learn from that encounter. Remember that we need to learn about Jesus' ministry and his life here on earth so that we can fully understand his death. What do we learn about Jesus from the miracle of turning water into wine? We learn of his creator-like glory and power. Next, we see Jesus clearing the businessmen out of the temple, which broadened that divide between those who believed and those who didn't. Then we see Jesus meet with Nicodemus. This particular conversation helps us learn about the new birth and justification by faith. After that, the Bible tells us that Jesus headed to Galilee, passing through Samaria, where he has a well-known conversation with a woman at a well. What are we learning here? What are we seeing here? Jesus is following a schedule dictated by His Father through the direction of the Holy Spirit. And we are also seeing that there's something to be learned by us through every single encounter that Jesus had throughout His earthly ministry recorded for us in the pages of Holy Scripture. In today's broadcast, we will see how great and glorious Jesus truly is. Look
1: at John 2, verse 1. On the third day, now again, they're there in Bethsaida. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So here's an early time in the life of the disciples with Jesus. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, which is a terrible, terrible faux pas in those days, when the wine ran out, that, is, that sends shivers down the spine of anybody hosting a wedding in those days. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to them, said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. And he filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, that is when they're a little tipsy and don't know the difference, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of His signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory. And His disciples believed in Him. Look, we need to put the scope of this miracle into some perspective. Because you need to understand the significance of what this did in providing exposure to Him early in His ministry. Six stone water jars used for purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons of water. That means when Jesus created wine from water, he just created a total volume of 120 to 150 gallons of wine. That is a lot, folks. It's incredible. John records the reaction of the master of the banquet. His exclamation, it grabbed everybody's attention. It confirms that this is very good wine. So, at fine wine prices, just putting this in perspective, Jesus' miracle provided somewhere around $180,000 to $225,000 in wine at the low end. If we go to the high end, which we probably should, around a million dollars. At today's prices, in today's market, Jesus had just provided this village wedding with a gift of wine estimated at more than a million dollars. Folks, that's unheard of. Not just in Cana, but anywhere. This does not happen. Who knew about it? (laughs) The servants knew. Master of the feast didn't even know, not initially. Jesus' mother didn't know, not initially. It was the servants. The ones who served the water made wine, they knew. The lowliest among them, they knew. And then we learn in verse 11 that his disciples knew about it. This sign pointed to his glory, it pointed to his creator like glory and power, it pointed to the identity of his true nature. And let me tell you, word got around. Things like that don't happen without notice. People started talking. They they left Cana, it says in verse 12. They went down to Capernaum. But the word of what had happened there that day, that spread throughout Galilee. Throughout the whole region. The exposure of his messianic ministry just got a massive boost. And word spread around the region. What he did next, though, that's what really put him on the map. He headed back to Jerusalem, it says, for the Passover in verse 13. He took his disciples with him. Look at it there, verse 13. Passover, the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple, He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers all sitting there. It's a pretty typical fare in Jesus' day during the, at the temple exercise of the Passover. Foreigners were coming from all over the world. And all the profiteers, all the chief priests and the Sadducees, they saw this as a great opportunity to make a little money. Well, there's exchange rates. There's, um, oh, your lamb that you brought from Babylon, that's actually not a good lamb. Here's a flaw. Here's a defect. By the way, we have some lambs for sale over here. Exorbitant prices. And we're making money. And Jesus comes in and He sees this. Verse 15, making a whip of cords, He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And He told those who sold the pigeons take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? It's unbelievable. They had the audacity to question him at that moment. But Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this. They believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It's a powerful confrontation here, right? As Jesus drives the commerce out of the temple, house of worship, he's indignant, he takes immediate action When the Jewish authorities question Him, He recognizes them for the unbelieving hypocrites that they are. They want a sign. So He points them to the sign of His resurrection from the dead, which they themselves will set up by crucifying Him just a few short years later. And even though He refused to perform a song and dance routine for these hypocritical leaders, Jesus did perform signs while he was there in Jerusalem look at what it says there in verse 23 when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing Jesus on his part didn't entrust himself to them he knew all people he needed no one to bear witness about a man for he himself knew what was in man he knew the belief was fickle it was easily distracted but nonetheless there he is he's doing signs in Jerusalem he's doing that all during the Passover the feast of unleavened bread As I said, massive crowds are present during this one of the three major Jewish feasts. It says in verse 23, many believed in His name. They were impressed by the signs, by the miracles, the power. And they believed, at least initially, at least to some degree. One of the many who saw the signs, who believed, was a very significant individual named Nicodemus. He's a teacher of the Jews. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel. The Council of Israel. Notice John 3, 1 and 2. There was a man named, of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Sounds flattering. This rabbi, Nicodemus, probably 60s, 70s, Studied all his life. Respected. He says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. Who's the we? Nicodemus is relaying to Jesus the judgment of the Sanhedrin. This is the ruling council of the Jews in Jerusalem. So in a very short time, notice the the upper echelon of all Jewish society, the very top of the top, had taken notice of Jesus. Jesus. His fame, his reputation had spread. And one of their leaders, the one at the very top, the one with great respect, he didn't summon Jesus to come see him. He himself went and visited Jesus. Paid him a personal visit. Rather than being flattered by that visit, Jesus loved Nicodemus. And he told him the truth. He loved him enough to confront him with the truth of his spiritual condition. Confronted his spiritual blindness there in verse 3. He confronted his spiritual deadness and his inability in verses 5 to 8. He confronted his lack of basic biblical understanding in verse 10. You are the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. Then he confronted his fundamental problem of unbelief in verses 11 to 15. You don't receive what we say. Conversation, as you know, provides us with some of the richest teaching in the Bible on the necessity of the new birth. On justification by faith, John 3.16 is embedded right in the middle of this chapter. It's a, it's a chapter that tells us about the blinding darkness that comes from a commitment to sin. It talks about the proof of faith in the deeds of those who repent and come to the light, bringing their deeds into the open, that they might be clearly seen. We're so grateful for this fourth gospel. And we'd like to stick around, I know, and spend some time in this text, but we do need to keep moving. This is just to expose to you what Jesus' reputation was. What provided the reputation. But we have seen enough at this early stage to see Jesus' ministry is in full swing. It gained massive exposure in Judea. Exposure through John's testimony, through the sign of the wine, through the clearing of the temple, this conversation with Nicodemus, all this teaching. And all of that meant a meteoric rise to fame very quickly. And that's evidenced in what we read in Luke 4.14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. A report went out throughout all the surrounding country. After this conversation with Nicodemus, and perhaps informed by the fact that he had the attention of the Sanhedrin, it says in verse 22 that Jesus... In chapter 3, there, Jesus withdrew into the Judean countryside. His popularity was swelling. His reputation was spreading far and wide. And all those pilgrims who visited Jerusalem at Passover returned home. They brought with them all these stories of signs and wonders. They told of Jesus' zeal for holiness. They talked about his teaching, his depth, its clarity, its power, its authority. And Jesus knew that the growing popularity at risk an impetuous action, whether it was from the admiring crowds who'd want to crown Him prematurely or from the jealous leadership who wanted to make Him disappear. You can see the motivation for Jesus' withdrawal from Jerusalem due to a rapid rise in His popularity. It's right there in the text, the f- first in the fact that His ministry was beginning to eclipse that of John the Baptist. Look in verse 26 of John 3. Some of John's disciples came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. You can appreciate their loyalty, but it's profoundly misguided. John corrects them. At the end of the chapter, he says, he must increase, I must decrease. Look, John gets it. He rejoices like the friend of the bridegroom to see Jesus glorified, but not everybody's rejoicing. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, He left Judea, verse 3, and departed again for Galilee. The other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, they tell us that John had actually been arrested. And that was the reason that Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Matthew 4.12 says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, He withdrew into Galilee. Mark one fourteen same thing, that happened in the white spaces between John three thirty seven and John 4.1. and it's not only his arrest was not motivated by the irritation of Herod, Luke described that remember in Luke three nineteen and twenty that Herod, being convicted by John he put him into prison, but Herod's motivation that's his personal motivation for imprisoning John but that's not what led to it. As we see in Matthew 4.12 and Mark 1.14, the verb that's used there is the verb paradidomi. And it means he was handed over. So John was handed over to Herod by whom? There's some intrigue going on here. The Jewish leaders, out of jealousy, were involved in handing John over to Herod and they incited Herod to their cause pointing out how John had meddled in his private affairs and they wanted to deliver him over. Listen, Jesus knew these people. He knew these Pharisees and Sadducees, what they were like. He knew what the Herodians were like. He knew their character. He understood their motivations. He saw through their intrigue, through their hypocrisy, their collaboration. He wasn't fooled. And when he heard that John had been delivered over, when he'd been handed over, put in prison, he heard that the Pharisees had taken note of his own popularity, which was eclipsing and greater than John's. He put two and two together knew it was only a matter of time. And His death was going to be on His timetable, the Father's timetable, not theirs. He still had work to do. By the direction of the Holy Spirit, according to the will of the Father, John 4.3, Jesus left Judea, departed again for Galilee. It says there in verse 4 that He had to pass through Samaria. I love that. Had to. Required to. He must He's not in a hurry. He's not anxious. He's not worried, fearful. He's following a schedule. He's following the dictates of the Father by the direction of the Holy Spirit. This is where we come to stage two in Jesus' return. He returned to Galilee, like we said, in three stages. Stage one was exposure in Judea. That's what we saw there. Stage two, we'll do this briefly. Evangelism in Samaria. Evangelism in Samaria. You all know the story. Jesus stopped at a well in Samaria. He had a conversation with a Samaritan woman. She turned out to be an immoral woman who had five husbands. She's on her sixth man. And for a rabbi of growing popularity, gathering a loyal following, this conversation was going to be perceived as a career killer by several accounts, at least in the eyes of the general population. What's he doing consorting with a woman like that? The Jews would give him low marks We're going through Samaria in the first place. The Samaritans were the unfaithful Israelites who remained in the land during the Babylonian captivity. And the Babylonians shipped some of their own pagans over there into the land and they interbred with those people creating the Samaritans. That's the Samaritan people. Their religion was basically a cultish offshoot of Judaism. They were absolutely despised by the Jews on several accounts. But Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He had to meet this woman. Her ethnicity, her false religion, even her serious immorality didn't dissuade him at all. This conversation to evangelize this woman is a demonstration of the kindness of redeeming love that the Father intended to show through Messiah's ministry. I'm relieved, aren't you? I'm no different than that woman. It may have offended the sensitivities of the religious, the cultured among Jerusalem's elite, and it clearly did, as indicated by slanders throughout His ministry, but Jesus didn't pay that any mind. He had come to seek and save the lost. His evangelism of this woman provided an occasion for Him to teach His astonished disciples (laughs) to lead to the evangelism of the entire village of Sychar. God so loved the world, right? Not just the Jews, but Gentiles too. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and so... All are the targets of His redeeming mercy and love. Well, a few days He spent in Samaria meant His fame preceded Him into Galilee. Stage 1, exposure in Judea. Stage 2, evangelism in Samaria. Stage 3, establishment in Galilee. Jesus stayed briefly with the Samaritans, which had to be quite the cross-cultural experience for His bewildered disciples, but He had to keep moving. Look at John 4.43. End of the chapter of John 4. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, all the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. But they had gone to the feast. So we're back in Galilee again. He's well received by the Galileans. There they were. They, they, they saw what he did at the temple. They heard His teaching. They saw Him perform miracles. They were thrilled that He had come back to Galilee. This is where Jesus established His ministry. All three of the synoptic writers, all three focus on this Galilean ministry. Galilee, as you remember, is the northern part of Israel, Judea in the southern part. Galilee is one of the Tetrarchies ruled by Herod Antipas. Jesus goes into that region. It's a, more of a country feel. It's not an urban feel. The Sea of Galilee is one of the major sources of life and industry. The fishing trade was there. It's a land of agriculture. It's a bit simplistic to put it this way, but generally speaking, Galileans are like salt-of-the-earth kind of people. Like farmers, ag workers, all that. They're practically minded. They're hard-working farmers, fishermen. And to the south in Judea, with Jerusalem at the center of Judean life and culture, that's more of the white-collar folks. That's the academics, the priesthood, the the political rulers. And you can see it by the names of the places. The prominent feature in the north is a large lake, Galilee. The prominence of the southern part is the city, Jerusalem. It's the same thing in their day as it is in our day. There's a bit of despising going on between country and city, right? Galilean folks, Judean folks, there were definitely two different kinds of cultures. Not entirely alien from one another. They shared the same Scriptures, the same Abrahamic heritage, but they were very different. And they had two different levels of sophistication, different ways of thinking and living. The Judeans looked down on the Galileans as a bunch of uncultured, uneducated hayseeds. And the Galileans, they looked at the Judeans, especially those residing in Jerusalem, with a large bit of disdain. Some of that was warranted because of this political, religious collusion and corruption, scandalous... Issues, hardworking farmers, fishermen, they could see right through all that nonsense. They despised the corruption, the pandering to Rome, the politics. It's kind of like how we in Colorado look at people on the left coast and over in D.C. and New York, kind of look down at them. Good times begin when Jesus gets there to Galilee. As Jesus visits Cana, where he had turned water into wine. There at the end of chapter 4, after the Samaritan evangelism, he visits Cana, where he had turned the water into wine. Everybody there is happy to see him. Nobody wants to let him buy his own food at a restaurant or anything like that. They're not going to let him pay for anything, right? Say, hey, <laughs> your name, Jesus. You did the water with the wine thing. Oh, that is awesome. And it got better because he healed an official's son. And verse 54 summarizes that this is now the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. All that to say, you now know what's behind Luke 4.14. And you can turn back there, by the way, just briefly. When Luke tells us that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee You know what kind of power we're talking about. It had been manifest. It had been talked about to such a degree that a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. You need to realize the level of excitement, of anticipation, of expectation that surrounded his showing up in Galilee. Galilee is the perfect place for him to establish his ministry, it's got the right cultural disposition. It's got the right distance from Jerusalem. It's got the right kind of people who live there. Their natural sympathies. Jesus would have time there to teach and connect with people who could understand. He could do it all apart from opposition. Immediate, pressing opposition from political and religious establishment. He could do some positive teaching. Lay down positively the principles of His ministry. Teach the people about the God they thought they knew but didn't know. So he went back to Galilee because it was a perfect place. He also went back to Galilee because of the prophecy in Isaiah 9:1 and 2. It said, You, Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the land beyond the Jordan Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. So here he is. He's returned to Galilee, he's fulfilling prophecy. He's establishing his ministry. He's been on the move for a year and a half or so since his baptism. And now that he's got everybody's attention, he's ready to settle into ministry. We're going to start to see that next time. Father, thank You for what we've learned. seems like we don't ever have enough time to really get it all in. But Father, You're sovereign over that as well. We all trust that. We all see that. And we just pray that You would use the things we've talked about today to give us an appreciation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Help us to see how great and glorious and marvelous that He is. Thank You for not leaving us without a witness, but giving us the Gospel of John to fill in those early years so we can understand the expectations that Jesus faced when He walked into that synagogue in Nazareth, His hometown. So we can understand such a violent opposition to His words of mercy. We pray, Father, that we would not be a synagogue like that. We pray that we would be a church with hearts wide open, ready to receive the ministry of the Lord Jesus
0: Christ.
1: Join us again next
0: time as we continue our series called The Mission of God's Messiah. In the meantime, plan to visit our website, pillaroftruthradio.com. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at letters at pillar of truth Thanks for joining us today on Pillar of Truth.